With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Detroit Tigers, hoping to cut off any chance of the Indians adding to their lead on Sunday, pulled their infield in against Fran Mil Reyes. No, it didn't work. Cleveland padded their lead to finish the sweep, partially courtesy of Fran Mil Reyes. However, at the end of the inning, for some reason, all four quoted Ace Ventura. Now, they didn't care about Ray Finkel so much, but they were certainly looking for a clean pair of shorts. This is the Selvius Godcast. You are listening to the Selfie Is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field. Back to Spencer at the one and two at the Subscribe to Selfie Is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. What is up, everybody? TJ Zupi alongside Zach Meisel. Or you can find us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel. And of course, at Selby is Godcast on Twitter, on Instagram as well. And thank you to each and every single one of you who joins us on Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify, leaves us five-star reviews, and has found our new community over at patreon.com slash Selby is Godcast. Gosh, there's just so much to get to now to begin the show. We got so much to touch on, so I'm, I'm glad I can get through that and I'll kick it to you, where you'll just take care of the rest of the show. All right, so Emmanuel Classe throws really hard. The Indians pitching is still really good. Framil Reyes hits homers all over the place, and we're going to talk to Nick Sandlin. All right, that's it. (laughs) Without further ado, no, actually, we are going to chat a little bit about what we just saw, look ahead to the the week that is coming, and and talk about what we could have in a a few moments, depending on some outcomes of some games that are currently still going as we record this on Sunday, late Sunday evening, could be talking about the first place Cleveland Indians getting ready to what? battle the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to go. The Indians aren't supposed to be 5-3. and three. Their offense is terrible, and the pitching is going to be the only thing that keeps them in games. And, well, I think some of this you have to keep in mind. The quality of the competition hasn't been spectacular right out of the gate, but that's certainly not the Indians' problem. And to their credit, after stubbing their toe a little bit initially, they're now five and three as they head into the week. Five and three, but you see the formula, right? The pitching is still elite. I think the Tigers had 13 hits in the three-game series, and the bullpen, as was predicted on the Selby's Godcast, has been the team's strength when they've used it. I know Nick Wickren's had a little bit of a rough go, but look, I'm not trying to examine an eight-game sample too much, but you can see the foundation. You, Class A looks totally dominant. Karinchek might be erratic at times, but you know what he brings to the table. And Brian Shaw looks like he did in 2014. Um, so you see the bullpen. We know the talent, the rotation. And as we alluded to last week, the Indians were hitting the ball hard. They weren't being rewarded for it. Now, we didn't know, and we still don't know if that's going to continue, if they're going to have the exit velocity and and, hit balls 
far enough and hard enough that should result in extra bases, but weren't initially. Well, if you hit it over the fence, that takes care of that. You can't have too much bad luck if you just hit a home run. Um, and they did that all weekend. Like you said, can they do this against the White Sox? They, you know, they're going to have the White Sox, the Reds, and then the Yankees, Red, White Sox, and Twins. Those are their next five series. Those, those are tough. And it's going to be interesting to see if the pitching holds up. And it'll be interesting to see if this lineup continues to produce the way it has. But you see the makings. I think you see some of the traits in these players. Why we said this is a difficult year to handicap because they have so many young players. We don't know if all of these 24 and 25-year-olds are going to flourish this year or if some of them are going to go through some growing pains. We've seen a little bit of both so far. Um, but there is still a bunch of talent, and it's, it certainly has panned out over the last handful of days. I mean, as I tweeted you earlier today, I don't think anybody expected I, even the smallest of sample sizes, the Indians, to lead baseball in barrels per plate appearance. That goes down a little bit today because they didn't have a barrel, despite the fact that the offense was able to pound out some hits and emerge with the sweep. But I didn't anticipate this offense crushing the ball like they have at times this year. Some of that has not been rewarded in the, the run column. But I think if, as you look at it in this extremely small sample size. The offense has, from a results standpoint, just the runs, I think probably done a lot of what we would have anticipated, that it was going to be tough for them to string together hits, and if they could go on home run binges, they could probably put up some nice run outputs, but I don't know how often that's going to be there. But to their credit, I mean, if you look below the surface, they've done a lot of good, good things that you would hope continue. I don't know that I would still believe that this offense is capable of being on their best days better than really an average club. But that's the fun of this season. We get to find out about some of these players. You know, we're, we're starting to see a little bit of Andres Jimenez, and he's hit the ball hard a lot here recently. Um, we saw him hit the home run on Saturday, so that's good to see. But getting some, some offensive output from the shortstop, and now you're seeing Ahmed Rosario play some center field. Getting opportunities, working them in for a guy like Jordan Luplo, who has done what you expect he would do against left-handed pitching, to the, I guess, pain of some people on Twitter. And then you have the, the bullpen coming hold in. On, and... Hold, Go hold ahead. on, hold on, He's literally, since the start of the 2019 season, he is the fourth best hitter in baseball against lefties. The three ahead of him are Nelson Cruz, J.D. Martinez, and Alex Bregman. <laughs> well, that... He ranks just ahead of D.J. LeMahieu, who is fifth. He's the fourth best hitter in baseball. So, yeah, and I did this research when trying to figure out does it make sense to put him in the leadoff spot? It doesn't matter where you put him. As long as it's in the top half of the lineup yeah. against lefties, it makes sense. He yeah, needs that's... to be in there every day. And anyone who suggests otherwise is just lazy and hasn't actually put in the effort to do yeah. a little bit of research. Somebody said, well, he still stinks. What does oh, that mean? I, okay. Um, and I know this is just lashing out because you get frustrated with this team sometimes. And I get it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to nitpick and, and even more deeper than that have some very serious criticisms about this club and the way that they've operated in, in the, the past several years. I'm just surprised we have any time to talk about Jordan Luplo and his ability to hit left-handed pitching. It just doesn't seem like it would be anywhere near the list of complaints that I would have. And hey, if if you're right someday and, and he stinks and he's still getting opportunities, then yeah, you can add that somewhere near the top of your list. That ain't a problem right now. 
And the fact that we were even spending any time discussing it, I, I don't get it. But okay, we're here to to in, inform when we can, and we've both pointed out getting Jordan Luplo as many at-bats against a left-handed pitcher, that's a good way to go about creating some offense if you look at the way that his track record would suggest he would perform against southpaws. And, and there's been a lot of criticism of Terry Francona, you know, how he handles certain things in the bullpen, how he handles lineups and bunting, and, and some of that is warranted. But I, I'll give him some credit. I think he's been very proactive in how he's gotten some players to the plate to take advantage of some platoon advantages and, and mixing the lineups to begin the year, where it's not always easy to do that because you have off days and they've been broken up facing a lot of left-handed pitching. But, you know, we both said that the at-bats can be there for guys that we have to find out about. And really, my only complaint is Ben Gamble. And that's been about it because everywhere else, I feel like you've got to find out and, and put some guys in some advantageous spots. We've seen that. So credit to, to Terry Francona as far as that goes. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, especially against right. Like, <laughs> the center fielder doesn't need to hit first just because Luplo is doing it. Um, and this goes back to like, when Mike Freeman subbed in for Jose Ramirez for a couple games last year, and he just stuck Mike Freeman in wherever was Ramirez was hitting, whether it was second or third or um, maybe fifth or something, like it doesn't have to go that way. Um, and I think, especially the way Framil Reyes is going right now, and he said he's just having the time of his life at the plate. I mean, he hit three home runs over the weekend, one to left, one to center, one to right. And Can we talk about his wheels he's... going around first base? <laughs> this dude <laughs> looking like a, a truck going downhill without brakes on his way to hustle into second for a double. I mean, that was incredible. All gas, no brakes. And he, you know, when he's going well, I mean, the, the pitch he hit Saturday night out to right field, which technically was the second one because uh, one pitch earlier, he hit one that sailed a few feet wide of the foul pole, and then you never see a hitter come back on the next pitch and actually hit one out, unless your name is Bill Selby or Jose Ramirez did earlier in the week. But but Reyes, like, he says his timing is so perfect right now that he's got uh, just, he's afforded himself a lot of time to be able to recognize the spin and, and what pitch is coming his way. And that's key. When you go up there and the game is slowed down for you and that's when it feels like you're hitting a beach ball. And even when he's not hitting home runs, I mean, he contributed... It's a big part of the offense on Sunday. So I, I, I guess my long-winded point here is against Wright, he's like, I hate that. Do you really have to get Ben Gamble more at-bats than Framil Reyes, mm. who's yeah. been like your hottest hitter? Yeah. No. No, we both talked about that. And or even Ahmed Rosario, who led off Friday night or Saturday, one of the games against a righty. Like he's, he's much better against lefties. So they just need – this is going to take time. You're not going to have your ideal lineup – the first week of April, I recognize that this this every single year, the lineup looks totally different at this point in the season than it does a few weeks or a few months from now. Um, but uh, it, it's the quicker they can find out what works, the better. And yeah. I think they have accomplished that maybe more quickly than I would have thought coming into this season. Yeah, and we don't want to get too carried away because it is a five and three stretch against two of the the, the lesser teams in the American League. I mean, Kansas City. You anticipated they would be a little bit better. Detroit, as we've talked about, look like a fun squad that will be dangerous perhaps in a couple of years. And They've got some good young pitchers. They're looking for some offense, but they're still 
going to find themselves somewhere near the bottom of the American League standings when this season is all said and done. So we How pref- do you know that? We preface because I saw Nomar Mazzara throw the ball all around the yard. So <laughs> it looks like me, as I told you, look like me playing World Series Baseball 98 on Sega Saturn, just like launching it towards the plate. And wherever it ends up, fine. So we're not going to go wild here. We're not going to say, oh, we told you so, because neither one of us told you anything other than this team probably is going to be a, a middle-of-the-pack squad this year, somewhere hovering around 500. But it doesn't How do make, you know that? It doesn't make it any less true that they had a good weekend, uh, that they did what they're supposed to do, do against teams like Detroit and Kansas City. No matter how they got there, it's still a 5-3 and three stretch. I can make a case that they probably should have had one more win based on how they hit the ball in the second game of the season at Comerica Park. But still, you head into this week coming up against Chicago, feeling like you're learning something about this team. Not anywhere near enough to make determinations on guys that we think fans would probably like to see determinations made on. Guys like Jake Bowers, for instance. But we're learning about this team. They come out. They had a a good weekend as they get ready to play a, a team in Chicago that's positioned to be one of the better teams in the American League. No, no, no response as to how we know that. How do you know that? (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing, Zach, is we're learning a little bit about this bullpen that we didn't know Mm -hmm. coming into the year exactly how they would be deployed. We had a pretty sneaky suspicion, I think, that we were going to see the back trio sort of utilized in, in, in all different sorts of ways and not necessarily tied to different roles. And that's pretty much what we've seen. But I feel like we, we learned something about Terry Francona's trust level in his relievers and how he is going to utilize them as you looked at, at the way Sunday unfolded. So I think I said a couple of weeks ago that this season, look, it's not, you're not going to have pennant fever actually in April. Um, but in some ways, it's more interesting and fascinating to follow than the last few seasons because there's so much we don't know. And so you're going to have disappointments guys who maybe you expected to perform, expected to develop on the fly, and don't. You're also going to have some pleasant surprises. And already, like we all knew Klasse could throw really hard. We knew he had good stuff. But that was it. Like, we had never seen it in action in a game that mattered. And so we've seen him now a few times, and it's been it's appointment viewing. It, I, I've talked to a few coaches who have said, like, they're supposed to be watching Klasse's body movements or they're supposed to be monitoring what's happening in the dugout or the bullpen or, and they can't stop themselves from looking at the radar gun constantly. And I think that's what everybody in the ballpark, everybody in the press box, everybody at home is doing the same thing. You're looking to see what that radar says. And all right, is it going to be another 101? Is it going to be 100? Oh, shit. He only threw 98. What's wrong with him? He must be hurt. So... It's been really fun, and it just looks so effortless, and it's, it's not even just the velocity, because the hitters will even tell you, what's the, I mean, what's the difference between 98 and 100? I mean, you close your eyes and you swing, but it's the movement. It's if you're a lefty, it's coming in at your hands, and it's plunging toward the dirt a little bit. If you're a righty, it's, it's tailing away from you. Then he mixes in the slider. The slider is so much better than I even realized that thing, he threw one uh, against Kansas City, I think, that just dove toward the plate. And, you know, the key, if, if you can tunnel those two pitches, like, how on earth 
are you supposed to hit it? And if you make contact, it's not going to be solid. It's going to hurt like hell, and you're probably not going to be rewarded for it. So, yeah, he's he's been incredible. It says a ton that Terry Francona trusts him with the game on the line in the eighth or ninth inning. It's a one-run game. You got the heart of the other team's order up, even if it's Detroit or Kansas City. It's still their best hitters, and he's the guy you want on the mound. And he's 23, and the Indians still like don't even know him that well. That says a ton. We've seen it takes time to earn trust from Terry Francona. So, it, yeah, it, and it's you know I've enjoyed watching the mixing and matching here, where one game it's Wickren in the ninth because that's the lowest of the leverage situations between the seventh, eighth, and ninth. And today it was Wickren in the seventh because. It was the bottom of the order, and you wanted to save Karinchek and Class A to face the tougher hitters. Like, they have worked this really well so far. I think it's helped that Brian Shaw is throwing hard and um, seeing results. I know he gave up a home run the other night, but he's looked pretty good so far. We haven't even seen Phil Maton. We know he's got good stuff. So it's it, it's off to a really good start. And when you combine that with a rotation that Bieber, Plesak, and Savali look like they're in midseason form ready to throw seven quality innings every time out. But there's going to be some some hiccups and some uncertainty with Logan Allen in the fifth spot, which Tristan McKenzie will start on Monday night in Chicago. Like Those guys aren't going to go 120 pitches. So to be able to go Shaw, Wickren, Karinchek, and Class A in order on Sunday, like that's, that's so huge. I was thinking about it too. You have Karinchek coming in with a ball, with his fastball that can hit 96, 97, and it's got a capability of having some elite rise, which is it doesn't fall at the same rate a normal fastball would. So when you swing, you think it's going to be one way, one place in the strike zone, and it ends up it's a little bit higher than you anticipated. It leads to a lot of strikeouts and a lot of pop-ups. And then you, you pair that with Classe that throws a little bit harder than Karinchek, but he, he doesn't, his fastball, that cutter, doesn't work the same way a four-seamer with rise would. So if you see it, you think it, you, this ball's coming at you 100 miles per hour, that it's going to have that similar rise to it, but it doesn't. It darts away from the barrel of your batter, as you said, in towards a left-handed hitter, and it just becomes impossible to make that strong, solid contact and then lift it in the air. It it, it leads to, he, he gets so many ground balls, and it, it kind of speaks to the outing like he had today, where a couple of, of, of players reach, but you don't get as concerned. If you have a strikeout pitcher that has a lot of fly balls and a couple of guys on, there's traffic, you might think he could strike everybody out, which Karinchek can, and as you saw, still had to work through some traffic in, in his outing. But with Class A, he can keep the ball on the ground. So you're always one pitch away, just like this game got closed out on Sunday, from a double play ball. And that's also what makes him so fun because it's, it's not just the swing and miss stuff. He doesn't really command that swing and miss like you think a guy that throws 102 would but as he gets maybe a little bit smarter in the way that he pitches maybe he he understands that he has to live a little bit off the plate too but when he has traffic the ground the ball's on the ground and you're going to have abilities to to turn double plays and, and end games that way so it makes it a lot of fun and also you're seeing how Terry Francona is going to do this, that it's not always going to be the same order. It's not always going to be Wittgren, Karinchek, Class A. Uh, Look at the way he deployed those guys against which parts of the order. He brought in Wittgren. This is just thinking of this 
in his head as he's mapping this out. He was planning to bring in Whitgren for six, seven, eight. Then he thought Karinchek nine, one, two, and who does he want to face the three, four, five guys? Emmanuel Classe. Ali Perez. Oh, sorry. Well, at least he finally got in the game. I was starting to feel bad for him. <laughs> he's still on his team, right? Finally, he gets into the game on yeah, Saturday. He's almost forty. This is like a <laughs> retirement tour for him. But I think that is important to to sort of maintain that in your head. It wasn't the order so much as who did Terry Francona yep. want those guys to face, and in what order was he thinking? And that tells you that tells you a lot about what he believes in those guys. And we can talk about whether or not Whitgren should be in that mix. You know, Maton is a guy that has more elite stuff than Whitgren, but still, Maton has yet to put that together in the same ways that Whitgren has a little bit more of a resume. We'll see as that unfolds and as the year goes on. Maybe Brian Shaw finds a way to get into that trio. Yeah, and I, and I think that it's so many people have asked, like, tweet that Class A threw 12 cutters all between 99.9 and 101.7, um, which sound like those aren't rock radio stations, the manual Class A cutter velocities. But people have asked, they're like, when are they going to just name Class A the closer? And, like, can't this guy just be named the closer? We need to evolve our thinking. Because everything we just laid out is why they haven't done that. Because there might be a day when you've got Luis Robert, Johan Mancata, and Jose Abreu coming up in a one-run game. Those guys are coming up in the eighth, and you want Class A then. You don't want to wait till the ninth when you might face the bottom of the order, when you might not have the lead anymore. So I think if you want, if you want Class A dubbed the closer, instead think of it you want him dubbed as their high leverage reliever or their their ace, relief ace, something like that. Because that's the way that they're structuring this right now. And I think it's, you can say, Class A is that guy. You know, maybe we don't cement that yet because Karen Cech is still pitching high leverage situations too. Um, and they're probably interchangeable at this point in Terry Francona's mind. But for all intents and purposes, like Class A is the guy out there. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, if he's not... Him and Karinchuk, I think they're probably 1A, 1B. So, no, they're not going to just dub him the closer because they don't want him just only pitching in the ninth when sometimes it's a three-run lead and you've got the bottom of the order coming up. If, you wanna, if you're having a bad day and you want to just feel better, head over to Emmanuel Classe's StatCast baseball savant page and just look at all the red at the top. Uh, spoiler alert, that's good. And I was just looking at that. My God, it's uh, a beauty to behold, for sure. I would think it's sort of like uh, almost as beautiful as when Logan Allen gets to walk off the mound. He gets to sit down on the bench, and he gets to have a conversation with Ruben Niebel. Somebody that we've talked about means a lot to this pitching staff, and as we are getting ready to talk to Nick Sandlin coming up in a few minutes here on the Godcast, someone that he has said was a big part of his early development when he first joined the system, I got to think that immediate feedback for Ruben Niebla just sitting on the bench ready to talk to Logan Allen and and just kind of put him in the right spot of mind for what he needs to think about, what he did well, what he didn't do well, what he needs to work on, and just have that immediately on the bench right after he walks off the mound. It's got to be invaluable to these pitchers. I was talking to Ruben this week for a while, actually, and he, it's, it's so, when you talk to him for asking him, mechanical questions, stuff that is over my head and just other things. And he can explain anything in the world. Like, I wish I would have asked him 
what the purpose of life is and how the universe began and stuff like that. Because this guy, not only does he have the answers, but he's just able to translate things in a way for you to understand. And it dawned on me during the conversation that like, this is why he's successful. This is why they have a pitching factory. Because exactly what he's doing to me, where he's giving his answers, he's getting things in a way that I can digest, me some stupid plebeian who doesn't know what pronation and supination and all this shit means. I can understand it. He obviously can connect with any pitcher because he's able to take all this data and information and just put forth this messaging that pitchers can understand. And it's why he's worked in this organization for 21 years. It's why he's moved up the chain. It's why the Indians have done everything to make sure another team doesn't hire him away. And there's not a pitcher who has come through this system who... If you ask them, you know, who's been a big influence on you, they all credit Ruben Niebla. And that's not to take anything away from Carl Willis, who is as experienced as they come, and who has done a really good job adapting to the technology and, and learning all of that and how to apply it. It's not to take anything away from Brian Sweeney, who's done a masterful job, especially with advanced statistics, um, or anyone else. I mean, it's, it's a huge collaborative effort with members of the front office, coordinators in the minor leagues. But Ruben Abel has been a constant for two decades, and he deserves as much credit as anybody. Yeah, I think that's a, a positive, that they have as many different uh, thoughts and voices that can come together. And credit to Carl Willis, he's not going to be upset if he sees Ruben Niebla sitting down next to Logan Allen. Um, I think as we're seeing pitching coaches, or pitching, sorry, as we're seeing coaching staffs evolve, you have so many different guys now on the bench that all have something that they specialize in. Um, and Ruben Yabel is so multi-talented, but I think for a pitching coach like Carl Willis, it's also delegation and knowing you know when you need to step in and say something, when you need to let somebody else who has a specialty in a certain field can also step in and, and, and be able to say what they need to or you know, come at you with data or whatever the case may be. So I, they've, they've got a good mix of everybody there in the dugout. Clearly it's working. And that's part of the reason why I'm excited to talk to who we've got coming up next. You know, part of the, the reason why I like this show, Zach, is we all have different areas of, of, of specialty. You know, you bring such a, a, a cynical view on everything, and then I'm just here for movie quotes. So that's wait, really <laughs> that's wait that that's not that's not the roles we're playing. I like to think I'm a pretty positive person. <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. You jackass. Sir, you are. Uh, but. Uh... I am excited because we get to do something a little bit different on this podcast. We don't do a ton of interviews, but we got a chance to, to talk to Indians prospect Nick Sandlin. And, I actually have a question about this. Okay. Is this our first player interview on the podcast since our sit-down gathering with Bill Selby and Holbert Cabrera? Yeah, I think so. Wow. That's some elite company. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you count when Rick Manning yelled at us in the – the dining room for sitting at the table that they wanted to sit at. Do you count that as a player interview? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, okay. Well, then if not, yes, it'll be the case. I don't know if we'll be adding more player interviews to the mix. A lot of that depends on what you guys want. But uh, I'm, I'm super excited that as this podcast grows and continues to evolve... We get to do different things. Every single episode, I'm hoping, is a little bit different than the past one you listen to. And that's why this one will be a little bit different as we now sit down and talk to Indians relief prospect, Nick Sandlin. 
It's the Selby is Godcast. TJ Zuppi alongside Zach Meisel. We are joined now by a man the Indians selected in the second round of the 2018 draft. He's now one of the top Cleveland relief prospects in the system, and we could be seeing him very soon. He's Nick Sandlin. Nick, first of all, let's start with the, the most pressing topic. You're working your way back from the forearm surgery of 2019. Would you say that you're you're pretty much all the way back to being you now? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, got to pitch last last summer at the alternate site, and kind of that was good for me to get over the hump from uh, the rehab perspective, and you know, been feeling good for since since then. So um, definitely good to be back and not have to worry about um, the health aspect uh, for the time being. You and I were talking a little bit before we started this. Just how nice is it to? to be in a place where you you have some new scenery in Columbus. You actually get to see something different than just being at the alternate site every single day. Yeah, this um, this alternate site's a lot better than our setup last year. Um, I think, you know, they probably learned from it that, you know, it was tough for guys to just play the same, same people all the time and not play against outside competition. So um, the fact that we just get to play other teams right now, you know, you – just really missed that team aspect last year and, you know, being able to compete, you know, in a game format. So um, it seems like it's going to be uh, much better this year. When you've got the minor league season just around the corner, like, you know, you'll actually have some real games here, especially for you, given um, the time you missed and just the pandemic last year, just how, how exciting is that? How eager are you to finally get into a real season and, and see where it takes you? Um, it's real exciting. Uh, even it's been exciting even the last like month or so playing in spring training and um, some a couple of these alternate site games just because it was just a lot better than what the past year has been. But um, yeah, definitely getting a, a minor a minor league season under our belts and being able to compete every night, you know, travel around and just get back to normal would would be great for everyone, I think. So for, for fans that are unfamiliar, kind of take us through what the, the forearm injury you suffered was and, and what the rehab was like for that. So you've got, what, a plate and, and six screws had to be put in there so you could actually pitch. Just take us through how how difficult that was for you and, and from a mental aspect, just how uh, how crazy is that just to deal with back in, in 2019? Yeah, it's a, a plate and six screws in the forearm, which is pretty uh, rare or unique injury, I guess. Uh was kind of shocked when, you know, they were telling me the route they were going to go to repair the stress fracture, which I had in 19. Um, it had bothered me for a little while, probably about a year, until it got to a point where, like, it, we needed to do something about it to see, like, whatever would happen to heal it. But, um, you know, the rehab was... You know, it, it took less than like a Tommy John or something, but, you know, it's still, you know, rehabbing from any surgery, any guy on any part of their body, when they have to do that, it's it's a, it's a challenge. So, um, you know, you learn a lot. You learn a lot uh, how to hopefully take care of your body to prevent that, but, um, you know, how to listen to your body and as you're coming back from that to, um, you know, get back to how you were before. So, Nick, 2018, you... You get drafted in the second round after a dominant year at Southern Miss as a starting pitcher. And then you go to rookie ball in Arizona. And then you go to A ball in Lake County. 
then you go to high A in Lynchburg, then double A in Akron. And I mean, that's a lot of movement really rapidly. Um, and I know there was even consideration from the organization just to, to keep that going. Just was that year a whirlwind? I can't even imagine being in that many different places and moving up that quickly um, in that short of a period of time. What was that like? Uh, yeah, I, I would say a whirlwind. It was, it was, uh, it happened pretty quick. Um, you were, I was, you know, traveling around different teams and stuff and getting to meet new people and, you know, people I haven't played with while trying to, uh, you know, get to learn how things work in pro ball and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm glad I did it. Uh, it was, it was easier to show up to spring the next year and you kind of knew everyone compared to not seeing a lot of the players at different levels and stuff. But, um, yeah, it was fun. I was, I was just trying to, you know, compete, keep my head down and see like, you know, where I'd end up. But um, definitely glad that, you know, that was the way it worked out at first. Could you have imagined that that was going to be your career path when you, you made the switch to throwing from that sidearm delivery? I think that was junior year in high school that was suggested to you. How, how did that go? And, and when, when you made that switch, did you ever have any thoughts and, and dreams of where that was actually going to end up taking? Did you have any inkling at all? No, I, I, I've been more focused on, you know, hitting and playing infield, which I definitely wouldn't have got to a point where I am now. But um, I had gone from pitching zero innings my sophomore year to, I don't know, 80 or 90 or something sidearm. And we were just, just thought it would help me pitch a little better. And, uh, you know, starting junior year, I was just trying to maybe, you know, get a scholarship somewhere to play college ball because that's really all I was focused on. Definitely not playing professionally and then um you know once I got to college ball and started having some success then you know the idea changed that you wanted to play you know pro ball and thought I could do that by pitching sidearm but um yeah and when you think back to trying to figure that out pitching sidearm and stuff like that it, it was definitely not to play in the big leagues or something now that uh now that I think about it <laughs> well I I know that I think the story goes your coach at the time had, had some experience with, with some sidearmers in the past. Is that correct? Yeah, we had a guy at my high school who threw like kind of submarine and I guess just trying to replace him when he graduated. And we just kind of thought maybe uh, the way I threw like around the infield, you know, changing some art angles that, uh, you know, I might be a good fit to try it out and kind of just like committed to it. Like that was the main thing, just being fully committed to the switch. Is do you look at that like an exclusive fraternity? I mean, there are, aren't a ton of side armors, so how do you go about changing that? Okay, so your coach has some experience with it, but as you progress through your career, I have to imagine there aren't a lot of people that have a ton of experience with with side armors. And you know, if things are going crazy for you mechanically, where do you turn to to kind of know what what you need to do? Well, I was I was lucky in college. Actually, um, seems like Southern Miss kind of has a decent bit of side armors and so did a couple of the other schools that recruited me. I don't know if maybe they kind of look for that. Um, we had a guy named Colin Cargill who, uh, he played pro ball and stuff and he was helping out at the program at Southern Miss at the time that he would always, I could always turn to him for mechanics and stuff. And I actually played with, um, Chad Bradford's son in college as well. So, um, he played at Southern Miss, Chad Bradford did. So, it, you know, there was kind of some guys around who threw like that, who could, you know, help me out at the time. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, there's, you know, not as many. So you kind of have to do your own thing in a little bit of a way. But those are, there's certain guys that you definitely look to when you're trying to learn how to, how to throw like that. So I think you said 
you studied Joe Smith and Steve Ciszek a little bit too. Just when you are looking at guys who have done that, what what are you trying to take away from them? Because I imagine, I mean, imagine it takes took a little bit of time to get the hang of it. I don't think people would go from just throwing normal or, or over overhand and then you're throwing sidearm the next day and it's I assume it's not just a piece of cake yeah I think when making the switch I would I would look at some of those guys like that for like you know mechanical adjustments and you know just seeing the way they throw but um you know over time I I kind of don't really look at other guys for like mechanical stuff I kind of just do my own thing on that on that end just like try to do what I do well and knowing what I do well and try to improve on that but for now if if I was gonna you know, look at other guys. I would just probably look at the ones who uh, just just see how they attack hitters and uh, elite hitters, like how they pitch to them and, you know, how their stuff plays in the big leagues, really. So if you're doing a mundane, everyday task, like you're tossing the remote control to your roommate or you're throwing a wad of paper in the garbage, do you use a sidearm motion or can you just toss it regularly? No, 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 no sidearm motion. I uh, actually warm up like throwing normal pretty much or what I think is almost probably lower than most people, but I warm up until, until I'm fully loose until I throw a sidearm. I don't want, I don't want to forget how to, how to throw normal. So when I have to feel the ball and throw it over there, or pick off and I don't look stupid doing it. <laughs> I, I guess I'm also curious because it is such an exclusive fraternity. You know, we see bikers wave hello to each other. We see truckers wave hello, or maybe even like Volkswagen Beetle owners waving to each other. Do other sidearmers recognize each other, like a little tip of the cap to each other? Uh, I don't think so. Not that, not that I know of. I don't know. It's, I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's something that you're kind of competing against those guys. I don't know. Every time I feel like I'm watching a game and somebody throws like that, everyone just goes straight to comparing them to you, you know? I don't know. Right. <laughs> for you throwing from that motion, you know, there's so much uh, discussion now and so much data and, and pitch development has become such a huge part of, of the life of a pitcher now. And for the Indians, they get so much credit for what they do uh, developing pitchers. We see it in the major leagues now with their starting rotation. Now all of these young relievers coming up, including yourself. Uh, is it difficult or is it different when you're trying to look at, at pitch design, when you're throwing from a unique motion? Uh, does it take more effort, or is it pretty similar to everybody else? I'm just curious how you know the the data reacts to where the way you throw in, and it's not like you're you're up there throwing junk. I mean, you're still able to bring it at 95 coming from that motion. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think everyone's different when you get to like breaking apart the data and and seeing like you know what your pitches do and stuff like that. Um, I think one interesting thing you can kind of compare curveballs to sidearm sliders because it's like a similar, basically it's just tilted. Like it's, it's like a tilted curveball for me from the way it like comes out of your hand. But um, yeah, like I said, I mean, everyone throws, everyone's pitches are different, even if they throw from the same arm angle and stuff. So, you know, with the Indians, just, they really just do a good job of letting you know what you do well and like how your pitches act. And then you can kind of go from there and build on your strengths. Is there anyone in particular, whether a coordinator or a coach, who you've leaned on? I know, like uh, everybody seems to answer this question with Ruben Niebla, um, but I know there are tons of tons of people in that organization, and they all collaborate. Is there anyone who's who's kind of helped you in particular? Um, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's there's tons of people who are really hands on with us. Um, when I first got drafted, uh, Ruben and Matt Blake were 
the coordinators, you know, taking us through a bunch of that info and, you know, teaching us that. And uh, over the past, you know, I guess year, um, Joe Torres and Joel Mangrum now have done a good job as being the coordinators, just, you know, taking over that role and, you know, staying involved with, with each and every pitcher. It seems like they're really good at, because I know there's so much information, right? And, and it seems like they're really good at just communicating it and then relaying it to you guys in a way that's easy to understand. Is that kind of what's behind like the witchcraft and how they're able to, to really connect with pitchers and put them in such good positions? Absolutely. I think uh, there's certain people who could get caught up a little bit too much in it or maybe get into details where a guy like me might not even understand everything that they're trying to trying to tell you because I mean you could you could uh you could look at the stuff forever but they do a good job of translating you know how you're going to use the data and the info and you know take it in the game to to help you get guys out do you feel like because we have so much data now and I think for hitters, it's a little bit more difficult to, to, to make similar leaps the way that pitchers are. But we're, we're really in an era now where we're seeing guys create such elite velocity, maybe even guys that didn't have it, but they're able to, to add an extra tick or two to their fastballs um, with, with the way that we're able to study the pitch, how it moves with the cameras and the numbers. Do you feel like there's, no, there's been no better time to be a pitcher than right now? Oh, absolutely. It's kind of like guys have a, an advantage right now just – like you said, the pitchers can have a lot more of the technology kind of goes to our side compared to hitters at this point. But, um, yeah, it's crazy what some guys have been able to do and improve on. And I mean, you turn on any game now and you just see some some nasty stuff being thrown, to say the least. <laughs> well, what's the key for you to throw to, to reach up to 95? You know, guys talk about, you know, keeping their leverage and staying over the mound and all the, the different things you've probably heard since the dawn of, of time for you holding a ball on the, the top of the hill. But just for you, when you are when you have that unique delivery, how do you maintain velocity and still keep it, you know, in that 95 range? And on top of that, are you even, do you think you're able to, to add more to that as your career progresses? Um, yeah, I hope so. Um, I'm still, I'm still gaining velocity like each and every year. Um, so, I mean, I hope it keeps going this way. Uh, yeah, I've hit 96, like, multiple times this year. So just hoping to, if I can, you know, stay in that low to mid-90s range or maybe even sit in the mid-90s that, you know, it's obviously, it can't hurt you. It's it's obviously an advantage, velocity is. So I don't, I don't know if it's a certain little mechanical thing. I don't, that's not really what I attribute it to. It's just, you know, I keep putting in a lot of work in the off season and I've put in a lot of work to, you know, come back from rehab and stuff, and just to see that the velocity has gone up since it's just like a I don't know if it's a quantifiable like number that just shows that you know I you know I've been working hard and continue to do that and hopefully can keep improving on that front. Speaking of velocity, we've <laughs> we've seen Emmanuel Classe pitch a few times now since the regular season started, and I say we've seen him pitch, but it's it's actually. It's impossible to actually watch him because we're all just staring at the radar gun, I think. Um, you know, it looks so effortless. Every cutter is 101 miles an hour, and then he's got that nasty slider. What? I mean, you saw him in spring training. Just What were your thoughts watching this guy? It's pretty incredible, <laughs> for sure, just to see the movement on the pitches as he's throwing it, you know, 100 to 102 or I guess whatever he feels like throwing that day. 
<laughs> um, he's a big guy, and um, you know he's got a he's got a really loose arm. And I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's just extremely impressive. Do you uh, enjoy watching a lot of? You're coming up with a lot of these young arms in the system. I mean, Karen Check and Claus Air that are right there, but even beyond that, just watching some of the stuff that you guys have uh, currently in the bullpen in the minor leagues, just how much fun from a teammate perspective is just to kind of see all the different looks that that this organization has brought together. Pretty cool. Like as a pitcher, just to be able to sit back and watch that, it probably wouldn't be as fun as a hitter, but we definitely have a lot of guys with some some really good stuff. And, you know, like I said, you can turn on any game now and see some nasty pitches and it's the same thing. Uh, you know, at any spring training game we have or backfield game or alternate site game. So uh, definitely makes it more entertaining to if you're not throwing to the eighth inning or something, you get to watch some some guys throwing 98 or whatever they got that day. When you get to the point that you're at now, how do you kind of not temper your expectations, but just, I mean, I if I was in your shoes, I think I would be staring at my phone 24 hours a day because you never know when you might get that call that says, hey, we need Sandlin, get him up here. Just how do you kind of take a step back and, and have some patience? You know, I'm just trying to focus on where I'm at, I'm trying to improve on, you know, my pitches and getting guys out, attacking hitters and, you know, keeping it simple and just trying to stay healthy, focus on, you know, myself for the time being. And then when the season starts and the teams get going and focus on winning here and then, um, you know, whenever that time comes, I'll be ready. But hopefully, you know, put myself in the best spot I can, you know, while I'm while I'm here in Columbus or you know wherever I'm at. And um, you know, I've mentally, I feel like I'll be ready for whenever that time comes. But just trying to focus on taking care of everything physically. What would you say was what well, better prepared you for where you're at right now? All of your time, you know, whether it was the switch to the sidearm motion in high school or everything you kind of learned in college, going through a lot of pressure pack situations to now elevating yourself all the way up to the big leagues. Did all of that prepare you more for where you're at? Or was it perhaps facing your older brother, Jake in the backyard where I'm sure you just <laughs> always had some sort of brotherly uh, competition going on? You know, um, the, the whole way up, you know, growing up being around the field with Jake and stuff was, was awesome for me just to see, um, you know, all the baseball that was out there. I wasn't shocked when I got to any level or anything just to, cause you'd kind of seen him go through it before, at, you know, the high school and college level and all that. And, um, you know, lucky to be around good programs, winning teams and stuff, you know, growing, growing up through high school and college. And, um, it was, yeah, it was obviously a good experience to play with Jake in college. That was, um, that was, uh, probably the coolest moment. Yeah. So, Baseball yes. career, I'd say. I, I was just going to ask about that. What's that like? He's a senior, right? And and you're a freshman. Just what is that experience like? Showing up to the ball yard and playing with your brother, where I think I had read at one point maybe you'd served as his bat boy, and then now you're on his on his college team. I mean, that just has to be pretty pretty special. Yeah. So it was the first time I guess we'd been on the same team because he's four years older than me. So like he had graduated high school right before, and he's supposed to graduate college right before, but he had like a he was at a different school and had a medical red shirt his first year. So he was a fifth year senior and um, weird how it worked out. I, I mean, it was the summer before me going to my freshman year of college. I kind of just like called our, our, our hitting coach. I was like, I mean, do we need an outfielder? Like, and uh, I knew he was eligible to like transfer uh, immediately being a grad transfer. And um, 
he was like, I guess kind of thrown off by it, but then he made some calls and to people he knows that uh, also knew Jake and they were kind of just like, of course, yeah, like it'll work out. And you know, it really did. Does he still help you as far as just managing where you're at? Uh, even today? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he coaches high school now and stuff. I would say he's he's more on the, you know, the hitting end. But, um, you know, he, he helps me with just his support, just like the rest of my family and stuff. And they're always, you know, keeping up with me, checking in on how I'm doing. And, uh, you know, definitely good to have that support. I'm, I'm curious, if you could go back now to to your uh, your freshman self in, in college, of all the things you've learned, if you could go back and give yourself some some past advice to help you kind of navigate where you're going to get to. What, what would you tell yourself? Oh man, I don't know. That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, start, uh, taking, doing more of the, uh, arm care stuff. Cause I feel like in college I used to just pick up a ball and start throwing it, which I mean, I don't know how I used to do that considering now everyone has their routines that take some, 30 minutes to an hour to throw, but I feel like uh, maybe that would have helped me uh, (laughs) on the field and, you know, stay in shape more. (laughs) Well, that'll happen, Nick, as you get older, too. You realize even the simple stuff, like getting out of bed, you need like an hour to prepare yourself for that. So just be ready. I hope I don't get to that one. But uh... (laughs) Hey, father time comes for us all. Uh, Last one I've got for you, Nick. Um, You know, if, if you weren't doing the whole baseball thing, if you weren't kind of on the cusp of being a major leaguer. What do you think you'd be doing with yourself now? What, what, what sort of uh, interests would you be pursuing? What sort of passions do you have off the, the baseball field? Oh, man. Um, well, I was in school studying, like, construction engineering, so I'm sure that would probably would have ended up being the route I was on. Um, you know, now being around baseball and doing it as a job, it would be, you know, probably good to stay around the game. But if it wasn't for baseball, I guess I would have just went school and probably you know worked in the construction field well nick we thank you for uh taking the time to join us today uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to you we hope to have some future conversations maybe after you get that call to the major leagues and uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you got all right well i appreciate it guys y'all have a good one all right that'll do it for this week's episode or at least the monday episode here of the selby is godcast thank you again to nick sandlin for joining us here on the show you can subscribe apple Podcasts, google stitcher spotify that's where you can find the free weekly episode that we do pretty much every single sunday monday somewhere in that category and if you want even more selby is godcast goodness showing up in your podcast feed we do a midweek episode now find us patreon.com slash selby is godcast we thank each and every single one of you that have joined our little exclusive community and you can be part of the the now hundreds of people that have joined us over at patreon.com again thank you to each and every single one of you so until later this week for zach meisel i'm tj zuppi we're out of here have a good week everybody see ya